Well, um, as we begin, I just want to make sure that you have your expectations set appropriately. Uh, I won't be able to address every single detail of eschatology. Some of you are already disappointed. You can leave right now. That's okay. Uh, but we'll try to do as much as possible in the time that we have together, uh, only because so much has been written, so much has been said and, uh, and done in this area of theology. And uh, certainly there are many disagreements. I'm sure if you've studied it in any extent, you know that there are various views, and we'll touch on some of them. But my primary commitment is to help you understand what we teach here at Grace Church and why, and we'll get into some arguments and counter-arguments to go a little bit deeper than what our doctrinal statement goes into, just so that you have a general sense of what we believe about eschatology. And as I study, as I start this morning, um, here are some of the views that have been presented over the years on eschatology and some terms that uh, have been associated with this discussion. Premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensationalism, covenantalism, pre, post, mid-trib, pre-wrath, kingdom, preterism, theonomy, dominion theology. And every single view has uh, arguments and counter-arguments. So there's a lot to study with each one. I'm going to recommend three books for a future study for you if you'd like to do so. The first one is this book. It's called... Understanding End Times Prophecy, Understanding End Times Prophecy by Paul Benware. Paul Benware, it's available in a bookstore, and uh, it's not that expensive, but it's probably the best treatment of eschatological views, and it ultimately argues for what we teach here at our church, but it engages the opposing views and explains biblically why he lands where he lands, which is where we land. So that the book is called Understanding End Times Prophecy by Paul Benware. The other two are by our pastor. One is called The Second Coming by our pastor, and that is a, uh, basically a commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, kind of a simpler version. He's got the two-volume set, of course, in his commentary series, but this would be a general overview of the book of uh, Revelation, and it's called The Second Coming. And then this one is Because the Time is Near, also kind of synthesizing the end times discussion. So because the time is near. So both of those books have been around for a little while. And I encourage you to pick one of them up if you'd like to go deeper. But of course, you're always welcome to ask questions, not just of me, but any of the pastors and even professors at our church. As we study eschatology, I want to make sure that we um, ultimately end up in a place of being eager for the Lord's return. That's really my a commitment and excite and uh, really encouragement to all of us that we would be excited for Jesus Christ to come back. Dale Moody said this about heaven. Surely it is not wrong for us to think and talk about heaven. I'd like to locate it and find out all I can about it. I expect to live there through all eternity if I were going to dwell in any place in this country. If I, were gonna make, if I was going to make it my home, I would inquire about its climate, about its neighbors, about everything, in fact, that I could learn concerning it. If soon you were going to emigrate, that is the way you would feel. Well, we are all going to emigrate in a very little while. We are going to spend eternity in another world, a grand and glorious world where God reigns. Is it not natural that we should look and listen and try to find out who is already there and what is the route to take? So, at the very least, I hope to get you 
excited to study more about heaven, more about the future, no matter how difficult the study may be. And so I want to give you a couple, five specifically goals that we have for this morning. The first, maybe the first motivation why we study end times is because of the future consummation. This is the end of the gospel story. That's one way to look at it. This is where everything culminates, and therefore we should be excited about it. This is Revelation 21, the first four verses. I'll try to put as many Bible passages on the screen so you don't have to flip too much, but we're going to have to look at some of them because otherwise the PowerPoint will be too long. So Revelation 21, the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is the zenith point of the gospel story where everything ends and it ends well. Ultimately, God is victorious. And the point of our study is not to, cre- to invent some perfect, flawless system. We're not going to be able to answer every single objection, every single question. But it is to remind us that the story of the gospel starts in the, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis and it ends here in the book of Revelation. And when you begin to compare the terminology, the imagery, the concepts in Genesis with Revelation, you understand that there's a new Eden coming. God is ultimately restoring all things in order to once again dwell with man. In Genesis 3.8, it says that Adam walked with God. And ultimately, that's where it all ends. We will be with God in his presence. It is the theological restoration of the Garden of Eden. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6, this is what we read. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So consummation is the first motivation for the study of this topic, but secondly, it's worship. To him be dominion and glory forever and ever. That is our second motivation, that ultimately we want to study the future things because we want to be better worshipers. Isaiah 43, verse 21 says that God created his people for his glory. Isaiah 43, 21. And then you get to 1 Corinthians 15, 28. This is what it says. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Ultimately, God is glorified even through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal in history. We see a preview of that in Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 4, 
9 through 11. When the living creatures give glory, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, to the 24 elders who will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. That's the ultimate purpose. We want to be better worshipers. That's our future, so might as well learn how to do that now by studying who God is. I love the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And the last stanza, you may have it memorized, says this. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. Let me get to it. There it is. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow and humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. That's the worship we're talking about, that we will bow before him when Jesus Christ comes back. Now, there are a few other reasons to study eschatology. There's a blessing that's promised. Back in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 3, this is how John opens his book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then look at how he ends the book of Revelation. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So in the final book of the Bible, the way the Holy Spirit intended to inspire it and close it by opening and closing that book with a promise of a blessing. If you study these things, you will be blessed. And I want to encourage you to do so. If you want a blessing. Even if it means that we have Deuteronomy 29, 29 in our Bibles. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. So we should still study it and try to understand it, but whatever we do have as revealed to us, our responsibility is to obey. Well, we have another motivation for the study of the end times, and that is holiness. Holiness. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. So the motivation is to be holy before our God. In 1 John chapter 3, John says something similar when he says, verse 2, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are children of God, and yet it has not appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. In other words, our transformation into the perfect likeness of Jesus Christ morally happens when we see Him face to face. It doesn't happen on this earth. And there's your perfect verse to anyone who thinks you can become perfect in this life. And then verse 3. And anyone who has this hope, the hope of seeing Jesus face to face and to be transformed into His likeness, Anyone who has this hope, fixed on him, purifies himself as he is pure. 
the proof of your desire to see Jesus Christ, the proof of your desire to be like him, is your present commitment to holiness, to purification. So, studying the end times, the return of Jesus Christ, should motivate us toward holiness. And finally, anticipation. Anticipation, that is what is most exciting, I think, is to understand what is happening in the future and how we can be a part of it. The quote that I read from Moody should be a good visual, an illustration for us to consider. Every single time you plan a vacation, I bet you try to do some research about that place before you leave your home. Is that fair? At the very least, you've got to buy airfare somewhere. Right? So you at least know where you're going, and you know a little bit about the place, or perhaps when you move. Lots of people have been moving from L.A., even from our own church. A lot of my friends have left. They're starting up in Florida, in Idaho, in Texas, in Arizona, all over the place, just not here. <laughs> and I guarantee you that they have researched the city that they're moving to. They're looking for a church that they can attend. They're looking for work. They're looking for a community to live in. Well, our future destination is heaven. And so we ought to spend some time studying about where we're going. And so 2 Peter 3, verse 13, according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly Wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is to excite us toward heaven. And there are six key events that will take place from this point forward that will help create an infrastructure for our discussion this morning. Six key events. When you look at this chart behind me, the bottom layer tells you what's in the past, what's in the present, what's in the future. And you can kind of see from creation to the first coming of Jesus Christ, and you can see what took place, the crucifixion. We're currently in the church age. We're in the church age, and the next thing that happens in the timeline of history, human history as ordained by God, is the rapture. The rapture is the next event, and that initiates the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, which lasts for seven years, we have the second coming. And then when Jesus comes back, that initiates the establishment of the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. At the end of the millennial kingdom, we have one final judgment. There's a series of judgments. And then we have the eternal state. So those are the events, kind of in blocks, that you should consider if you'd like to understand our church's position on the end times or eschatology. Now, at the very beginning, I showed you a slide with various perspectives on eschatology. Let me just define a few of them so you have an idea of what each one means in case you're in a conversation with people and they're throwing out these terms at you. So, amillennialism. Amillennialism is easy to remember. I would say millennialism means the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of Jesus Christ reigning. That's our position. Ah comes from the Greek kind of a, a prefix that means negative. No millennial. So amillennialism says that there is no actual physical 1,000 years of Christ's reign. There's no rapture. There's no first physical resurrection. So we kind of slide right into the eternal state to put it simply. I know it's not that simple, but to put it simply lest we all get confused. 
The second view that's out there is post-millennialism, which means we are improving this world. So the Christian is responsible to invest into the community, to invest into this world, to improve it, whether it's the arts or the infrastructure or the political system, and prepare the world for the return of Jesus Christ. So post-millennialism means Jesus comes back as we prepare the world for his return. Preterism is another perspective And there are full and then there's partial preterists. Here's what it means. That a lot of the prophecies that we read about in the book of Revelation, the Old Testament books, the Gospels, were fulfilled by the year A.D. 70. The reason that year is selected is because that's when the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And there was massive devastation, lots of lives were lost. Josephus, a historian from the first century, says about a million people were killed in that war. It's called the Jewish War, but the reference is to the Jewish War with Rome. And so it was such a horrific time for Israel that people have said, well, that is the tribulation. And so then, a lot of the prophecies were fulfilled, so we shouldn't be anticipating the future fulfillment of these prophecies, they've taken place in the year AD 70. The difference between a full preterist and a partial preterist, the full preterist says all the prophecies have been fulfilled. The partial says, well, some are yet to be fulfilled in the future. So somebody like Arsis Pro, right, a friend of our ministry for many years, he's a partial preterist. He's in heaven now, so I think he's got a different perspective. <laughs> and then we have premillennialism. That is our position here. And what that means is that Jesus comes back to establish the millennial kingdom. So Jesus returns before the millennial kingdom. Now, of course, there are two opinions within that view as well. So there's what's called the covenantal or historic premillennialism. Generally speaking, it means that the church will go through the tribulation. So the tribulation will happen. And the church stays on this earth, and then Jesus comes back. Where we land is the next one down, and that's dispensational premillennialism. In other words, the church is taken out before the tribulation takes place. Okay, that's called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Okay, and let me just kind of run through all this. And you can see the difference in the boxes. All it is is just those two boxes are reversed. Okay, now... As we talk about the rapture, so if you go back to the very first slide that I talked about, the next thing that happens on our timeline is the rapture. The rapture of the church, that's what we believe. And there are multiple passages in the Bible that we can look to, to understand the rapture. One of the more famous ones is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Let me read that for us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The two words that are underlined, cut up, it comes from a Latin word, which is rapturo, rapturo. Rapture, that's where it comes from, just so you understand the connection, even linguistically. It means to be carried away by force. So our understanding of the rapture that you're just snatched up to be with the Lord comes from this 
passage and from that Latin term. So that is what happens. The question is, okay, so who is a part of the rapture? Well, first, our dead Christians from the church age are resurrected and they are raptured. Christians who are alive when Jesus comes back. So the focus is on believers. It's not on the unsaved. They remain on this planet for the tribulation. It's not the Old Testament saints because they're not in Christ. It's 1 Thessalonians 4 said. So we're focusing on Christians. The dead Christians are resurrected. And then the living Christians are taken up. How does it happen? Well, we just read this. We'll meet him in the sky. So in other words, true believers will be suddenly cut up into the air by the power of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, add the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So that's the how. It's going to be a brief moment of a transition from life here to life with Jesus Christ in the twinkling of an eye. Well, what is the purpose of the rapture? First, it is reunion. Ultimately, our goal, our desire, our destination is to be with Christ. And so the rapture is the means of being with Christ. Then we who are alive and remain will be cut up together with him in the clouds to be with the Lord. To be always with the Lord. But it's also glorification. I just read 1 Corinthians 15. We will be changed. So there's the second purpose, and that is glorification. The third is rewards. So when we talk about serving in the church, we talk about serving Christ faithfully while you are alive, we all anticipate rewards for your faithful service, don't we? We love those passages, don't we? In those moments of laziness, in those moments of difficulty, when counseling is hard, when fighting your own flesh is hard, we should be reminded of these promises of a future reward for our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so we have 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ. That little phrase right in the middle of the verse. It's a unique Greek word. You've heard it before possibly. It's called the bima. Bima seat of judgment. Bema. That's the word. It's different than the judgments that will take place at the end of human history that we'll get to in just a few minutes. This is specifically a judgment of rewards. You can read about that also in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15. through That passage focuses on the rewards coming to Christians. And it says some will burn up. Things that were not done, right, with precious stones, they will burn up. And then it says, and some will be saved so as through fire. So the idea behind that passage is similar to 2 Corinthians 5. It's talking about the future rewards for Christians and their faithful service. But certain things that Christians do out of pride out of self-promotion, out of futility. They're not done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not dependent on Him when we serve, when we do certain things. It will be burned up. It's just the seriousness 
of that should really weigh on our hearts. How important it is to pray ahead of time that our ministry is done in the power of the Holy Spirit, that our motivations are pure, because those are important, and that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. And so there also the idea is the bema seat of judgment. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, after a, an athletic ceremony, there was a, an awards ceremony where the athletes would come to the bema seat and they would receive their rewards, their crowns for being the best athlete in whatever field. The Olympics, for example, in the ancient times. So the idea there isn't judgment for, for good or evil. It's actually being rewarded for what you have done. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 gives us a preview of that moment. John says, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame, at his coming. So in other words, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, there will be a recollection of our lives. And there might be shame associated with some of the things we have said or done. And so John says, in order to not have shame and not shrink away from him, the idea is to put your eyes down on the floor, to not be able to look somebody in the eye because of what they know and what you know. So the response is, If you know that he is righteous, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So then he takes us from that preview of the future meeting with Jesus Christ and being able to look him in the eye and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. In order to experience that and not be ashamed, he says, pursue holiness, pursue righteousness. So the rewards are not merely for service, they're also for sanctification. That you're not ashamed for your life here. Well, so the rewards is another reason for the rapture. The next is protection. Protection. So in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. If you remember, Revelation 2 and 3, those two chapters are all about the seven letters to the churches. And it's a, it's a call to repentance for most of those churches. And so toward the end of that, we have this. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing the hour which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And then you have 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 says the following. You've turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us, from the wrath to come. So there's an idea that we are being protected from a future judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says something similar. So 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and then 5.9. So we have those passages that promise protection to believers from the hour of testing. The way we interpret that here is to say that God is promising a unique protection not only from the future final wrath, in the lake of fire, for those who are in Christ Jesus, but also from this future tribulation, that because of our commitment to Christ, He's going to keep us from the worst judgment that this world has ever experienced. And so we have reunion, glorification, rewards, protection, and finally, 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is also the purpose of the rapture. So once the rewards are given out, then the party begins. The marriage supper of the Lamb begins. And we understand the imagery that the Bible presents, a love story that God promised to his son a wife, a bride. And so he is purifying her. You just think about passages like Ephesians 5, Colossians 1, that she's going to be without any wrinkle, without any spot, flawless. The purification process of the church, that's what it's speaking of. And so at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's the spiritual union between Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And it talks about that in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in, the, in fine linen, bright and clear. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. If you wanted to know when God came up with this plan, the love story plan, just look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 15 through 14 specifically. Talk about this plan that was made in eternity past, where God promised this, and then ultimately Jesus Christ had to die in order to accomplish the plan, and then the Holy Spirit applies the plan to us. Well, some may say, well, why the tribulational rapture? What's the difference between the tribulational rapture and the second coming? So those who advocate for a post-tribulational rapture will begin to say, the, we make things too complicated. There doesn't seem to be way too many trumpets and all these activities. So here's what we do. Let me just list a few passages for you that talk about these future things, the second coming of Christ and the tribulational rapture. So you have Matthew 24 through 25. Matthew 24 through 25, those two chapters. You have Luke 17, you have Mark 13, you have 1 Corinthians 15, and you have 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So taking these passages and a couple more, we come up with this graph that's behind me. And so when you actually begin to pay attention to the details very carefully, here's what you have. The rapture event is the church meeting Christ in the clouds, whereas the second coming is Christ descending on the Mount of Olives. Remember, he has a physical body, so he can't be in two places at the same time. Okay? Secondly, no judgments are mentioned, whereas judgments are important. Nothing is said about the kingdom. When he comes back, the kingdom immediately launches. Both the dead and the living are given glorified bodies in the rapture event. Only the dead saints are given glorified bodies. It occurs before the wrath of God is poured out. It occurs after the day of the Lord. Number six, it's imminent. The other ones have specific signs that are preceding the second coming of Christ. Number seven, Christ returns to heaven with the church. Christ descends and stays on the earth. After the rapture, the believers are removed and only unbelievers are left on the earth. At the second coming, unbelievers are removed and only the believers are left on the earth. And then you have the final one, no geographical changes versus significant geographical changes. So because of those distinct details in each event that's described, we believe that there is a rapture and there is a separate second coming of Jesus Christ. So you could say there are three comings of Jesus. The first one that happened, and there's two more coming in the future. So when we talk about the summary of this whole event, first of all, the saints are raptured to heaven. 
and the unbelievers remain on this earth for seven years. Then there's the rewards that take place in heaven for faithful believers. And then we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, now, looking at the timeline of what's next. So we said there's six key events. The first is the rapture. That's the next thing on the timeline. So, if you look from left to right, you can see the church age, that's where we are now, and then all of a sudden the rapture happens, the Christians meet Christ in the air, at the top you have the judgment of Christ, the Bema seat, the rewards, the marriage supper, at the, on the earth you have the tribulation, every single person that dies before Christ, before the church age, during the tribulation, during the church age, and even in the millennium, they go to hell. Hell is temporary. I know that when we talk about the gospel, we talk about salvation, we typically say salvation from hell, right? That's usually the terminology we, we say. And that's true. But hell is temporary because it says that hell is taken and thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is permanent, whereas hell is temporary. And then you have the second coming to establish the millennial kingdom. And then the lake of fire, that's the final judgment. And then the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? So, that is the list for us. Now, let's get back to earth, right? We've been in heaven for a little bit. Let's get back to earth. What happens on the earth? Well, you have the tribulation. That's the second key event in our timeline. The tribulation. Why would God unleash such devastating judgment on this planet? Well, first is to convert Israel. That's one of the first reasons that is listed, and that's in Daniel Chapter 12, verse 7, where God intends to discipline his people in order to bring them to repentance. I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that there will be a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people. That's the judgment on Israel. All these events will be completed. Okay, So that's three and a half years of significant judgment in order to bring God's people to repentance. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The second reason for the devastation is to judge sinners. To judge sinners. Now we know a lot of passages about that, so we don't have to jump into any of them. But in order for people who oppose Christ and the church to actually be judged by God, the tribulation takes place. Matthew 24, 22 says, No one would have survived that season unless it wasn't by God's kindness. The third is to save Gentiles. To save the Gentiles. Revelation six eleven talks about this. If you remember, there's a scene in heaven where the saints are crying out, How long, how long, how long, O Lord? And the response is, until the number of the martyrs is complete. In other words, there is in God's plan people who are being judged, who are suffering rather in this period, who become saved in the tribulation. We'll talk about how they get saved in a minute. And God says, there's a number that I have. And until that number is complete of the martyrs for the gospel, the tribulation continues. So God has elect a number of individuals towards that judgment. To save the Gentiles. Now, when you think about the tribulation, you should think about devastation. 
Joel 1.15 says this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Zephaniah 1.14-18, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither the silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Just reading that one passage, and there are multiple like it, should be sobering of what will happen for those seven years on this planet. When God finally removes the church, which is most likely the restrainer in this season, and then unleashes judgment on this earth. Well, all this takes place in the span of seven years. Seven years. We get that from Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, prophesy a timeline for us that we can kind of attach some of these details upon. So it says this, 70 weeks, literally 77s. Okay, 77 is what it says, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, and then 62 weeks. Okay, a week is seven years. We get that from multiple passages. Daniel 9.2, Jeremiah 25.11, and Jeremiah 29.10. When you put those passages together, you realize, okay, a week is seven years. So you go, seven times seven is 49. Seven weeks. And 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And of nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations and determined, are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop. That's the middle of the tribulation, right? One week is seven years. So verse 27 is the tribulation. Just read it from that perspective. He, the Antichrist, he will make the firm co- a firm covenant with the many for one week, But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let me simplify it for you. 70 weeks. Understanding that one week is seven years, we have 490 years that Daniel 9.24-27 through speaks of. Okay? Now, historians and Bible scholars have tried to reconstruct the beginning point of this 490-year period. Okay? The best reconstruction that actually makes sense with historical events that have already taken place, and then we have the prophecy for the future, is that it began in 445 B.C. 49 years passed, 
That's Cyrus's decree. You can read about that in Isaiah 45, 1, where he says, okay, God's people can rebuild. Okay, we get that in Daniel 9, 25. And then the rebuilding takes place for 62 weeks, so that's 434 years. That takes us until the Messiah is cut off. Remember, we just read that. That takes us to AD 30. That's most likely the date that Jesus was crucified. So there's actual precision here. That's Daniel 9.25. And then it says, and then this skips. There's a gap. It doesn't really give us any specifics. And then it says, and then one week is initiated by an agreement between the Antichrist and the people of God. So if you want to say, okay, what will happen? The tribulation begins when there's a peace treaty with Israel. Now, no matter how old you are, Lots of presidents have tried to create peace in the Middle East, right? Many, many have. And still trying. Because unfortunately, even in recent history, there's been bombing from Gaza on Israel, right? On Tel Aviv and surrounding places. So what he's talking about, Daniel specifically, is that we can reconstruct history by taking these dates and apply this passage and realize that some of the prophecy from Daniel 9 has already taken place. It's fulfilled, but yet we're still waiting for the tribulation to begin. So we're now in the times of the Gentiles. If you go back to Daniel 9, you'll see the times of the Gentiles. That's our period. That's our season where God is saving the world through the church, the times of the Gentiles. But it'll come to an end. So what happens is this, the tribulation snapshot right in front of you, is that the rapture takes place, the Antichrist is now the ruler of the world, and we'll talk about him in a minute. Israel's protected because he initiated the peace treaty. At the same time, you have major devastation taking place. God is slowly unleashing the judgment, and we'll talk about each of those seals and trumpets and bowls. And then in the middle, he breaks that peace treaty, by committing the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. I'll explain that in a minute. And then the Antichrist reigns, major persecution on Israel and on the people of God. That's when the worship of Satan and the Antichrist takes place. And ultimately, everything climaxes at the end of that seven-year period with Armageddon. And that's when the unleashing of God's final judgment of the bulls takes place. So if you want a snapshot of what we just read, uh, Daniel 9, that's what you're looking at. Okay, so this is going to be a devastating period in human history. 80% of world population will die. The Bible calls it catastrophic and traumatic. Matthew 24, 21, Joel 2, 2, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. When you look at the phrases, Jacob's distress, tribulation, the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, it's all referring to the tribulation. It's just different phrases in the Old Testament specifically to the same period. Again, the wrath of God, Jacob's distress, or the Jacob, Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, and the 70th week. Okay, So, we see a snapshot of what will take place. Satan is... Loose through the Antichrist, through a false prophet, because he also can read. And he knows what's coming next, right? 
the thousand-year reign, and we know how that starts in Revelation chapter 20, where he's bound for a thousand years. And so he's trying to unleash as much damage on God's people, believers and Israel, Christians and Israel, that is, as he can in that time period. Okay? Now, the tribulation. What is actually taking place? How will people be able to be saved in that time period? Right? If all the Christians are gone, who's going to evangelize them? Well, you have a few indications in the book of Revelation. First, you have the angels. You remember, when you read Revelation, every so often an angel flies around the earth, and it says, repent, repent, repent. So there's a supernatural call to repentance. There's also the two witnesses in chapter 11 of Revelation. They're here in order to call people to repentance. You also have the 144,000 witnesses. That's in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. You also have the Bible. The Bible doesn't just disappear. The Bibles are still around. Whatever form they'll be in, who knows, right? You know, but there might not be iPhones anymore. But whatever happens, the Word of God is still available to a degree. And then you have, I should have edited this tapes. I don't think they exist anymore. But uh, in the museum they do. You'll have to break into a museum to get a tape to listen to the gospel. And then you have the people who are left behind who heard the gospel. And we know from uh, reading Revelation that some people will be saved in this time period. However, what is happening? Well, let's talk a little bit about the players in the tribulation. The Antichrist. The term Antichrist appears in 1 John 2.18. Just so you understand that. 1 John 2.18. It means somebody who is in the place of Christ. He is a nemesis to Christ. He's a replacement of Christ. So the idea is opposition, hostility, and substitution. It's speaking to his character and to his intentions. The names that he has elsewhere, 2 Thessalonians 2, is the man of lawlessness. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. In Daniel 7, he's called the little horn. So the little horn in Daniel 7, 8. In Revelation 13, 17, the beast, the man of lawlessness, this is the Antichrist. So as you kind of try to understand all the players in the tribulation, make sure you get the right titles for the Antichrist. So who is this individual? Well, when you collect all the passages in the Bible, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. Let me go through it again in case you are writing it down. Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 11. 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. Those passages create this profile of the Antichrist. He has excellent leadership ability. He's a great orator. He's able to solve complex political problems. He's intelligent. He's a great military leader. And he's very crafty. And you look at his career, it is chaotic and it's turbulent. It begins with the beginning of the tribulation. Daniel 7 speaks of that. Daniel 9 verse 26 speaks of that. And he begins to conquer nations. Revelation 6.2. And he has enough power to create a coalition in order to restore kind of a unified world. One world government, in other words. The same thing that the Tower of Babel builders tried to do. Right? Kind of unify the world. And then we'll get ourselves up to heaven. That was the plan. 
and then God disperses all of them, the Antichrist is trying to accomplish something similar. Unify the world under his regime. Well, by this point, the Jews are back in the land. The temple is operational. People ask, when will the temple be built? We don't know. All we know is that there are plans already in Israel with the Orthodox Jews for the building of the third temple. They have the blueprints. They're ready to build whenever they feel like they can without major retribution. Well, this world ruler, the Antichrist, begins to lead, and he has a ten-nation confederacy that is supporting him. Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 talks about this. But as he continues to advance and conquer, he builds up a plethora of enemies. And so finally, he is assassinated in the midpoint of the tribulation, but then he's restored to life. And after that, Revelation 13, that's where we get that from. Revelation 13, he becomes the object of worship because of that situation. So this miraculous event catapults him into global domination. So really, he accomplishes what Nebuchadnezzar, what Julius Caesar, what uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, what you could even say Hitler and Stalin and others have tried to do. Capture as much of the world as possible under their reign. He actually accomplishes it and becomes the dictator of the world. Now he has a right hand. That's the beast. The second beast. That's Revelation 13, 11 through 12. And so you have the second beast, and his responsibility is to point people toward the Antichrist, the first beast, as an object of worship and support and following. So you have the Antichrist, you have this second beast, who let's call him the false prophet, and then you have Satan. So you have the triumvirate, you have the unholy trinity working together with supernatural activities in order to convince the world to ultimately worship Satan. And the miraculous events help accomplish some of that. Well, all this takes place, and in Revelation 13, verse 4 says this, and the earth worshiped the dragon of old. That's Satan. So that's how we know that's the ultimate goal. They worship the dragon of old, Revelation 13, verse 4. So for 42 months, three and a half years, he is the world dictator, and he's ultimately committed to one thing, the second half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, to persecute the Jews. This becomes a terrible persecution of God's people. In Revelation 12, 6, it says that Satan would have annihilated them if it wasn't for the supernatural protection from God. So, in those passages, 12 and 13 in Revelation, you read that Satan is cast out from heaven, and that launches him into a more aggressive stance against God's people. You know Zechariah 2.8, he who touches Israel touches the apple of my eye, God says. So you can see God's protection and the unique affection for Israel. And so Satan understands that, and so he's using the Antichrist and the false prophet to accomplish exactly that, trying to cause pain to God, you could say. And so he goes after God's people, for three and a half years. And that's when the abomination of desolation takes place. Now, abomination of desolation, it's a phrase that's an allusion back in human history. Back in the years 167 to 164 BC, 167 to 164 BC, there was a war between Egypt and Syria. And Israel is caught in the middle. 
And so for many years, back and forth, one would reign over the other, and Israel is constantly the battleground territory. Well, in 167 to 164, ultimately, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You might have heard this in your history classes. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epimenes is the word, the, the word he liked, which means the great one. Epiphanes is the, I'm sorry, Epiphanes is the great one. Epimenes is the mad one. And so people began to mock him by calling him the mad one, the crazy one. But he preferred the Epiphanes, the great one. So he walks into the temple and offers a pig on the altar as a way to sacrifice uh, to his gods. And the Jewish people go berserk. And ultimately, the Maccabean rebellion takes place. And that is the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty. So for about 100 years, from 164 to about 66, 67 BC, the Jewish people have some independence from this battle back and forth from Egypt to Syria. And for 100 years they rule, and then Rome gets involved. And then, then from 66 BC all the way uh, into 100 BC, uh, AD, you don't have much freedom in Israel. But the abomination of desolation, that event of sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple is an abomination. So that was a preview of this future abomination of desolation as well, where the Antichrist will do something similar in order to irritate the Jewish people. Whenever Pilate would um, kind of stir up the Jewish people, they would revolt. And he did that a few times, even doing some things in the temple as well, kind of mixing the blood uh, of the sacrifices with some of the people by killing them. And ultimately, Rome deposed Pilate because they got tired of all the rebellion against Rome because of Pilate's misdeeds and abuse of God's people. So the Jewish people are very protective of the temple because it's sacred to them. So this is one way for the Antichrist to actually abuse his power and mock God's people. So this is his goal, to persecute the people of God. What's the religious atmosphere like in the tribulation? Well, first of all, the temple is operational. The Jewish people are offering sacrifices. Next, we have the harlot of Babylon, Revelation 17 to 18. Revelation 17 to 18 talks about the harlot of Babylon. And then Revelation 19 talks about the church, the bride of Christ, who's made herself ready, dressed in white linen. The juxtaposition of those two descriptions most likely signifies a false and a true church coexisting in the tribulation. And so the harlot of Babylon most likely refers to the false religion, this ecumenical religious movement. And they are also persecuting the people of God and other Christians. That's where you have the mark of the beast taking place. You can't buy, you can't sell. All those passages speaking of that future reality. I think uh, today, more than ever, right, we can actually begin to see how some of the prophecies in Revelation can take place so quickly. You know, whether it's uh, the issues of travel without certain things in your body, the vaccine and so on, whatever it is. I mean, so many things have happened in a year that has unified the world. You know, a disease has unified the world. And now it's just a time issue of when the things in Revelation will take place. So I, uh, I'm not going to be a uh, conspiracy theorist, but I am going to say that I think we can actually begin to see how what we've read for so many years can take place pretty quickly. And uh, we should take the Bible literally for that reason alone. Well, 
People are getting saved, as I said a minute ago. The Gentiles are getting saved. Revelation 6-9 talks about that. The martyrs are still happening in the tribulation. Revelation 7 talks about that. And so people are getting saved. While God is unleashing judgment. And it begins with the seals. The seals are the first form of God's judgment during the tribulation. And so you have seven of them. We're not going to be able to go through every single passage or every single uh, form of judgment. But in summary, what happens is the first seal launches the Antichrist into power. That's the white horse, and the crown is the image of victory. The second seal is wars begin to take place all over the world. That's the red horse. Total, open, warfare, unprecedented world conflict. The third seal is famine. That's the black horse representation. Famine takes place because of war. Just look at human history. And so people are dying because of famine. The fourth seal is death, the pale horse. A quarter of the world population die through war and various other animals. Number five, the fifth seal is the martyrs under the throne praying to Christ to get control of what's happening on this earth. Seal number six is cosmic disturbance. Now you get into the supernatural. You've got the sun, the moon, the stars. The heavens are rolling up like a scroll. The stars are falling down. The the heavens are turning to blood. The water is turning to blood. So the system is beginning to slowly collapse. And then the seventh seal is silence for 30 minutes on the earth until the next series of judgment is unleashed, and that is the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets, the first is a third of the grass, vegetation, and the food sources are burnt up. Again, more death. The second trumpet is a third of the seawater turns to blood, and a third of the sea creatures die. A third of the ships are destroyed. Again, more devastation and death and famine. The third trumpet is a third of the fresh waters contaminated, creating more devastation for the food sources. Number four, the trumpet, the fourth trumpet is a third of the sun, moon, stars are also darkened as this continues this kind of cataclysmic and really cosmological judgment. Why would God judge the world? Well, because man misused it. Man abused it. The fifth trumpet is demons emerge from the pit and torment people for five months. Revelation 9.6. Revelation 9.6 says that. And so that the people would seek death and beg to die. But God is sustaining their life in order for them to experience his judgment. The sixth trumpet is an army from the east is gathered, ready to march on Israel, the 200 million soldiers. That number comes from Revelation 9.16. Revelation 9.16 talks about the 200 million march from the east toward Israel and ultimately from God's perspective, is for the Armageddon. In the middle of some of that, you have the ministry of the two witnesses, Revelation 11. You have an earth, a great earthquake, Revelation 11 as well. And then you have three angels, Revelation 14, 6 and 7, they plead for repentance. Revelation 14, 8, it's a plea for judgment. And then Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it's a promise of condemnation. The seventh trumpet is a declaration that Christ is coming soon to establish his kingdom and that unleashes the seven bowls of judgment. So if you've seen the fireworks show, you could imagine this, right? It kind of starts out slow. We just had 4th of July, so you should be able to visualize this. But it ends amazing. 
right? In an amazing format where there's just firework after firework. You can kind of imagine the series of judgment in the same way, where it, ends, it begins slow, but then ultimately God just dumps the bowls onto the planet. The first one is terrible sores on all who follow the Antichrist. We get that from Revelation 16. The second one is all the seas. So we went with a quarter, then a third, and now all the seas are turned to blood and all the sea creatures die. All the fresh water is turned to blood. That's the third bowl. The fourth is the sun is made extremely bright, causing suffering on the people. The fifth bowl is darkness over all of the kingdom of the Antichrist. The sixth bowl is the river Euphrates is dried up, making passage for the 200 million to make the march to Israel, to the valley of Megiddo. And then the final seventh bowl is the earth moving, the islands move, the mountains move, and then 120-pound hailstones fall from heaven on people who blaspheme God. Revelation 16, verse 9 and verse 11 says this, instead of repenting in the middle of all of this, they blaspheme God. That's the response of a hardened heart. Well, Armageddon is next. If you want to take a picture of all the passages and all the, bold, uh, the judgments, here it is. Armageddon is the next event on the horizon. Okay, Revelation 9.16, I mentioned that the 200 million are marching through a dried up Euphrates. And they march into the valley of Megiddo. This is a picture of the valley of Megiddo. And the description of this is in Revelation 19. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And in the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with, with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Verse 20 says they were thrown into the lake of fire. The beast and the ones who worshipped the beast. Those are the first dwellers of the lake of fire. Currently it sits empty. Zechariah 14 talks about this event. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled, and the rest of the people will not be cut off, will be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. 
In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the second coming, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hands and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. That's the description of Armageddon. In other words, it's a a battle that is devastating, destructive, as the Antichrist most likely set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, and God gathers all the armies toward Jerusalem, thinking they're about to wage war against the people of God. But then Jesus comes back as part of the second coming with all his saints to make war against all the unbelievers. This ushers in the second coming. The second coming, and that's when Jesus, you you know the passages, he will tread the winepress, the blood will fill up in that area. That's the description we're talking about. Where does that take us? Well, the next step is the judgments. So after Armageddon is finished, we have the judgments. Judgments taking place. The first is the Antichrist and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire. We just read that. And then the sheep and the goats judgment. So remember, in the tribulation, people are getting saved. We talked about that. And so now Jesus has to judge between the sheep and the goats because the sheep who've died and those who were alive when he came back for the rapture are with him already. They're glorified. Now it's the rest of the individuals who are being judged and he is the last judge. John 5, 21 says God has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the ultimate judge. And so Matthew 25 Matthew 24, 31, those are the passages that talk about this judgment, but also the resurrection. The end of John 5 talks, or the middle of John 5 rather, talks about uh, those who are resurrected to life and those who are resurrected to death. Well, the next event is the binding of Satan because Jesus has to establish his kingdom. And so Revelation chapter 20, that's where you have six references to the millennial kingdom. And so it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So now we're in the millennial kingdom. Okay, The bad is behind us, mostly. Thousand years, that's the passages, if you want to know where we get that idea from. Satan is bound, the saints reign with Christ. Peace characterizes this entire period. He will rule with a a rod of righteousness. Joy dominates this thousand year period. And then the knowledge of the Lord abounds on the earth. Just one passage for us to consider. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who dies not live out his days, who doesn't live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. This is how we know this is the millennial kingdom and not the eternal state, because people are dying, even if they are dying 100. 
They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also paint vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build on another and inhabit. They will not plant and another one eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will, be, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. Okay, this is going to be quick, but here is what the millennial kingdom will be like. The land is restored. I encourage you to read Isaiah 11 and 12. Take you just five to seven minutes probably. But it's a wonderful short summary of the millennial kingdom and the response of the people of God. The enemies are defeated. Prosperity is enjoyed. Jerusalem is established. The temple is reinstated. Israel is prominent in the world. Gentiles are blessed. The knowledge of God is universal. Nature is perfected. Sorrow is eliminated. King Jesus reigns. All that will be the characteristic of the millennial kingdom until the final rebellion. The question is, where does this come from? We've had so many wars. We had Armageddon already. Where is this final rebellion coming from? Well, remember, into the millennial kingdom come two types of people. You have the glorified saints who came down with Jesus at the second coming, and they go into the millennial kingdom. Right? They are glorified, they are eternal, they cannot sin. But then you have people who were saved through the tribulation. And they stayed alive somehow by God's protective power. And they also entered the millennial kingdom. They are the ones who are having children. We just read about them. And some of them are dying at a hundred. But some of them will ultimately rebel against Jesus Christ, which is an insight into our understanding of human depravity. The environment is perfect again. Right? We're in the millennial kingdom. It's wonderful. I mean, just reading that passage is a great description of what's to come. But people are still rebelling against Jesus Christ. And Satan is loosed at the end of that thousand years. Revelation 20 talks about that. And then he creates one final coalition against Christ. And of course, it's unsuccessful. You see that in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. And there's a final judgment. And then we're moving toward the eternal state. One comment I wanted to make for you because this can be confusing in the Bible. You've heard the phrase Gog and Magog. Revelation 30, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 talk about uh, Gog and Magog. But then there's also reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20. Here's the issue. They're not the same battles because of the description that I have in front of you. If you just take a look at the details, I'm not going to go through every bullet point, uh, but there's enough differences in those passages that we cannot say that they are the same event. In other words, most likely, the Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog, takes place right before the Millennial Kingdom. There's so many wars. If you start reading all the passages, there's war after war after war. And it seems that one of them is a Gog and Magog war. And then in Revelation 20, which is the final rebellion after the Millennial Kingdom is an allusion back to the previous Gog and Magog as a way to say this is a reference point for you. This kind of happened in the past. It's happening again. The final rebellion against God. Okay, so take a look at that picture. If you have more questions, I'm happy to engage you privately. So now, after 
the final rebellion, when you look at various passages, we have a cleanup effort that takes place. Now, just remember how much death has taken place, how much destruction. And so there's a period of cleaning up that's all done. Let me correct myself, not to confuse you. That happens at the end of the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. Because at the end of this final battle, a new heaven and a new earth. There's no need for a cleanup effort before God blows up the whole thing anyways. So the cleanup effort takes place right before the millennial kingdom. At the end of this final battle, kind of like Gog and Magog, the new heavens and the new earth is established. Okay. So in the last few minutes, what is happening in heaven and what is it like? Well, what is not in heaven? Just as a way for you to think about. Let me just skip all these passages. You can read them. Revelation 21 and 22 is all about heaven. We're, we're skipping heaven for sure. All right. What is in the eternal kingdom of God? What is in heaven? The new Jerusalem. The redeemed who inhabit the new Jerusalem. The trinity is there, individually marked out. Just understand that. It doesn't say that God is in heaven. No, each of the members are reflected to be in heaven. The water of life, a high mountain, the glory of God, city walls made of jewels that radiate the light of his glory like a multifaceted diadem, projecting a spectrum of brilliant light and color. City gates made of pearls, city foundation stones also made of precious jewels, streets of translucent gold, brilliant light that emanates from God himself, perpetual daytime, continual worship and praise, the river of life that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb, the tree of life and fruit and leaves on the tree of life, unending service to God and face-to-face fellowship with Christ. The name of God is written on the foreheads of his servants. What's not in the eternal kingdom? No sea, meaning no surfing, sadly. (laughs) No longer any separation between God and man. No tears, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no death, nothing that will not be made new. No spiritual thirst, no unforgiven sinner, no temple, because God is the temple. Keep that in mind, right? Some people ask, is there a temple in the eternal kingdom? There isn't. What's the point of the temple? For men to dwell with God, right? It's the meeting space. Tabernacle, the tabernacle did that. Then the temple did that. Then Jesus did that while he was on earth. Now you get to have face-to-face interaction with Jesus. Why do you need a temple? All those are just foreshadows of a future reality. There is no temple. There's no need for a lamp. There's no sun, no moon, because God is the light. No night. No closing of the gates. In other words, there's nothing to be afraid of. Security is all around you all the time. There's nothing unclean. No one whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. No curse, no end to the reign of Christ and His redeemed. And my favorite part is that in Revelation 22, verse 15, it says, There are no dogs in heaven either. Outside are the dogs. In case you were wondering and watched that old Disney movie. There are no dogs in heaven. That that might be metaphysically... What is in heaven? A new Jerusalem. If you look at the dimensions of the new Jerusalem in the Bible, here's an idea of what it would be like. Okay, so you can kind of see the the map. It is like putting 4,807 Los Angeleses together. Okay, in regards to square miles. The highest mountain on the planet is about five miles tall. Jerusalem rises 1,500 miles into the air. The walls are 200 feet thick. The wall of China is 27 feet thick. We're talking about 200 
foot walls. Why, if there's no threat? It's just the imagery of security and protection. And we are in the New Jerusalem. So, ultimately, there's security, there's protection. And where does it take us? Well, it takes us to Spurgeon's quote that I think is a good place to end. Oh, to think of heaven without Christ. It's the same thing as thinking of hell. Heaven without Christ. It's a day without the sun, existing without life, feasting without food, seeing without light. It involves a contradiction in terms. Heaven without Christ, absurd. It's the sea without water, the earth without its fields, the heavens without their stars. There cannot be a heaven without Christ. He's the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven, and heaven is Christ. Ultimately, that's where it ends. We know that Jesus reigns, and we will dwell with him forever and ever and ever. But my desire for you is as you kind of listen to this fast-paced survey of the future. And if you have questions, happy to talk to you about this. I'm happy to send you whatever information you want via email. Please remember the goal, why we're doing this. What was the first first few goals that I said? First of all, anticipate the return of King Jesus. Pray for it. Maranatha, right? That is our Christian chant and our Christian prayer. We want him to come back more than ever, I would say. Secondly, evangelize the lost. Remember that. All this is the future for those, especially the judgments for those who do not know Christ. Third, 2 Peter 3.10, what kind of people ought you to be in waiting for the day of the Lord? Holy. That's what Peter says. Actively pursue holiness. And we believe in sanctification. We preach sanctification. But it ultimately comes to you as an individual to have that relationship with Christ that is a sanctifying relationship. And finally, maintain an eternal perspective. Our citizenship is in heaven. So remember that. And I think it's becoming less and less um, exciting to build a kingdom here with all the turmoil that we've experienced. Therefore, invest into eternity. Use ungodly mammon to make friends for eternity, as Luke 16 says. That's our, that's our understanding of the end times here at the church. If you have questions, I'm happy to talk to you about them. But uh, let me close us in prayer, and then I'll let you go. Lord God, what a preview of our future. We know that ultimately our desire for heaven isn't the golden gates. It's not the pearls. It's you. You are Savior. We want to spend eternity with you because you're the only one who satisfies. You put eternity into our hearts from Ecclesiastes 3.11. And so we long for eternity with you. I do pray for every single person that we would be faithful to not only know this information because we'll be blessed if we study it and obey it, but so that we would also pass it on to others. That we would be faithful to evangelize the lost in order to Have them avoid the tribulation. We've got to pray for all of us to be reminded that we are going to be residents of heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion and the power forever and ever and ever. And so everybody here, I pray that all of us would have that personal relationship with him and that we would understand that we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. It's a gift from you. Help us to recognize it and to be grateful for it until we see you face to face. I thank you for this church. 
And for the faithful people, even in this room, who are so committed to you in their personal life and in their commitment to the church. We love you, and we can't wait to see you. Amen.